So, we're going to do Samson tonight. And let me orient you to the map behind us. And for those of you out in streaming land, you're going to want a map of Israel centered north and south on Bethlehem with Bethlehem over at the right edge and the Mediterranean Sea over the left edge. And that will get you all the action. Most of the action is going to take place between Zorah and Ishtar. And he's going to go down to Timnah to get himself a wife. Sort of a historical background, and Israel has fallen into apostasy once again. And the Philistines are oppressing the Israelites. And as you look at our map here, you see that all of the terrain structure is on the right side of the map. Sort of centered on Bethlehem. Above Bethlehem, you can see Jebus, which is going to be Jerusalem. And that's where the Israelites are, is on the central ridge that runs north and south in the country. So the Israelites are sort of the folks on the hills. And then the green area is the plain. And it's the plain of Sharon. It's very flat. And it is wonderful chariot country. So the... Philistines are a military people. They've got several cities, you know, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, so forth. And since there aren't any really well-defined military boundaries between the hill country and the plain, who owns what sort of sloshes back and forth? So, for example, the story of David and Goliath also takes place in this transition between the hill country and the plain. So as I say, there's no really well-defined, you know, like a river or a ridge line or something like that where you can say this side of it belongs to us and that side of it belongs to them. So who owns what sort of fluxes back and forth? And at this point in history, the Philistines are oppressing the Israelites and the judge who is going to be raised up is, of course, Samson, which is the subject of our story. So, Judges 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistine for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne any children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. A couple of things. You all, of course, know what a Nazarite is. Number six is the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow has some physical things that go with it. At least according to the rabbi, the minimum length of a Nazarite vow is 30 days. And if you take a Nazarite vow, what that means is you don't cut your hair and you don't touch anything that has anything to do with grapes. So... No wine, no raisins, no grape juice, no stuffed grape leaves as far as I know. The grape becomes forbidden to you. 
So anyway, the whole point here is to set aside a period where you are abstaining from everything with do the grape, but most especially wine, and you're dedicating yourself to God for that period, and, and it's a period of introspection typically and so forth. And at the end of that, you bring a sacrifice. And Now, there are several famous Nazarites in Scripture. Samson, of course, is one. Paul was a Nazarite. He took a Nazarite vow. I don't know if he was a Nazarite from his youth. I think Yeshua took a Nazarite vow just before the crucifixion. I think that's what's going on at the Last Supper where he hands around the last cup and said, I won't drink this again until I drink it new with you in the, in the kingdom. I think that's a Nazarite vow. So from a rabbinic point of view, the minimum duration of a Nazarite vow is 30 days. Samson here is dedicated as a Nazarite from birth and for his whole life. And the idea of no razor coming upon his head, you don't ever cut his hair because, again, he has a Nazarite vow. And, of course, that becomes the way that he is robbed of his strength at the end of the story. The other thing that's going on here, here you have this woman who has been married for some period of time to Manoah, her husband, and they're barren. And so she's out in the field minding her own business, and she comes back and she says, hey, this guy just showed up and said, I'm going to have a baby in this time next year. And if I were Mr. Manoa, I would say, oh, yeah? How's that going to work? In other words, I would be highly suspicious. Apparently, Manoa is not. I don't know why, but he's not. But for a man to show up to a barren woman with nobody else around and make an announcement that she's going to get pregnant, if I were such a young woman and I found myself suddenly pregnant, I could say, hey, there was an angel of the Lord out there, and uh, that's what happened. What I'm saying is, this situation is potentially fairly dangerous for her. In the same way it was dangerous for Mary, because she shows up pregnant, and she says, well, the Holy Spirit came and told me and came upon me, and shazam, there I was, pregnant. And Joseph was, shall we say, suspicious. And in Joseph's case, it took a visit from the Holy Spirit to calm his fears or his concerns and have him go ahead and marry her. So you could see how Manoah might be a bit uh, suspicious. Verse 6, Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us, and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Now, again, this is straightforward, and I'm not doubting any of the stuff that is said, but one of the things that's also in Numbers chapter 5 is the sota, which is the woman who is suspected of adultery, 
So number six is the Nazarite vow. Number five, just before that, starting in verse 11, is what do you do with a wife who is suspected of adultery? And there is a ritual you go through where she and her husband come before the priest and she takes a vow and so forth. And if she is saying correctly, then she will conceive children. If she is not, then she will. I don't know what it means when it says have her thigh rot, but it's not good. So, as we're looking here at Manila, consider his prayer in that light. His wife has come and said, this man of God swung by and said, you're going to have a baby. Manoah then goes to God and says, come and show us what we're supposed to do here. One of the things about the ritual of the Sota is the purpose of that is to restore trust in the marriage. It reads to our eyes as being very sexist, which it is. But the idea here is jealousy has come into the relationship and the husband no longer trusts his wife. So the purpose of the ceremony, which the wife can refuse to take, she can say, nope, sorry, I ain't going to do that. In which case, the suspicion, if you will, remains and probably the marriage is over. So if you go for that ceremony, the idea is you want the marriage to be preserved and you want trust to be restored in the relationship. That's the whole purpose of the ritual. So what Manoah is saying here is, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And I don't know what his attitude is. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze Manoah. But what I'm suggesting is what's happened with his wife here has the potential to sow discord in that marriage. So what he's essentially doing here is he's asking for confirmation and he's asking for God to set it up so that there's no hint of suspicion between the two of them. I kind of look at Manoah's prayer here as being in the same spirit as the Numbers 5 Sota ceremony with the same objective, which is to make sure that we don't have any suspicion between the husband and wife. Verse 9, And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So close, but no cigar. Manoah's got to be able to meet this guy. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. 
And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. So as far as Manoah is concerned, this is just some holy-looking guy in a field. And we've said this before just by way of repetition. For those of you who have read James Kugel's books on the Bible, which I highly recommend, they're very good, one of the things that he remarks on is early in the Bible, as these stories are, the barrier, if you will, between spiritual world and the physical world seems to be much more porous than it is later. And so what you wind up doing is you have instances like this where somebody is talking to a visitor or a stranger or something, and then something shifts, and all of a sudden the human realizes that he's talking to a spiritual being. And that's what's going to happen with Manoah. At this point, it's just like, okay, this is a prophet or a holy guy that's coming through or something like that. But he doesn't at this point suspect that he's actually dealing with an angelic being. That's fixing to shift. 17. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. Then the flame went up toward heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. So at this point, all of a sudden, the scene now shifts, and Manoah recognizes that he's dealing with an angelic being and not with a man. And we have the signature behavior of somebody in the Bible confronted with an angelic being. They go down like a sack of bricks. So verse 21. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at your hands, or shown us all these things, or now announce to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him at Mahanah Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. So from there, we're now on to chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And as you look at the map, remember my introductory remarks. Because Zorah, for example, and Eshtaol are sort of right on that boundary between Israelite territory and Philistine territory. So apparently Zorah and Eshtaol are Israelite, and then just a little bit down the road is Timnah, which is Philistine. So Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now, get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all our people, 
that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And I will take a short pause here. Samson clearly has an eye for the ladies. And that eventually, of course, is going to be his undoing. But he's going to go through several women as the story progresses. And one of the things that I've said many times, and it's worth saying here again, is Mr. Trump is an exact analog to Samson. He's a big guy. He's got funny hair. He doesn't drink. He's a teetotaler. He's kind of a thug. And he's got an eye for the ladies. So if you look at the story of Samson here and you think Trump, pretty much everything fits other than the seven new bowstrings. But we'll get there in a minute. The point is he has seen this gal and she is Melania Trump quality, at least in his eyes. So he wants her. Goes back to his parents and say, get her for my wife. Verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward them roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. So on his way down to chat up this young lady, he kills this young lion and doesn't tell anybody about it. Verse 8. After some days he returned to take her, the lady. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. He scraped it out with his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle, that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. So a couple of things going on here. Thing one is 30 changes of clothes is big bucks in that society because everything has to be handmade. So this is not a small wager. This is a large wager, as we'll see in a minute, when the bride's relatives say, all right, you need to figure out what this is, otherwise he's going to impoverish us. So that's sort of thing one. It's a big deal. The other thing is in 
that part of the world, this idea of riddles, the most famous one, I want to say, is the riddle of the Sphinx. The deal there is, what is it that in the morning goes on four legs, during the day goes on two, and during the evening goes on three? That was the riddle of the Sphinx. And the Sphinx would ask it of travelers, and if they couldn't answer it, the Sphinx had killed them. So the idea of these riddles being asked in this way with big stakes attached to a riddle is not unique to Samson. It's throughout the culture of that whole region at this time. So the idea of him putting a riddle to them and them accepting the bet on a riddle is something that was not unknown in that time and in that region. So in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Now, we think in terms of going to Walmart and grabbing 30 changes of clothes off a rack made in China or Korea or Taiwan or someplace, and it's not a big purchase. Here, this is a big deal because they are literally worried about being impoverished. And notice the threat. If you don't do that, we're going to burn you and we're going to burn your father's house down. So, I mean, this is not a small thing. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. So you're keeping secrets from me. Now, notice what's going on here. Because Samson on his side has got 30 garments on the line as well. So the Philistines have one garment per individual. Samson has got 30 garments of his own. So his future wife is willing to impoverish her future husband in order that her, her own people may win the bet. Now, she's being threatened with being burned. So serious threats going on here. But the other part of that is this gal is obviously not, at this point, especially loyal to her new husband. So you only hate me, you do not love me, you have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And I should tell you, she wept before him the seven days that the feast lasted. On the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. So I got to tell you, I would kind of be put off with this gal with that kind of behavior for seven days, no matter how pretty she is. And in fact, the marriage is going to fail. So... She nags him and nags him and nags him and weeps and weeps and weeps. And finally he says, all right, and tells her. Verse 18. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? So they answer the riddle in riddle format. Sort of like Jeopardy where you've got to answer it in the form of a question. Same idea. And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So he's not amused. 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon. Ashkelon, by the way, on our map here, is on the coast. Remember, this party is taking place in Finland. So he goes someplace else and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. So he is seriously ticked. In fact, so ticked that he goes to to the next small town in Ashdod, slaughters 30 guys, takes their loot, comes back, pays off his debt, and then stomps off, leaving his wife behind. So, as I say, he's impulsive, he's a thug, but he's also the guy that has been sent by God to deliver Israel from the Philistines. 15. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. They're still married, and the marriage has happened. So the deal is, Samson is in a major snit. He stomps off, slaughters 30 men, comes back, pays off his bet, and then leaves. So his wife is then given to the guy who had been the best man. And what obviously has happened is dad thinks that the marriage is off. I don't know what the procedure is in that kind of a wedding. I'm not sure when the consummation would have taken place. Because remember, the wedding feast is seven days. So it is entirely possible that she and Samson have consummated the marriage, which means at this point she is a divorced woman or a woman put away. So she is no longer, how shall we say, marketable in that society. So the fact that she's given to one of Samson's companions who had been his best man sort of smacks his daddy making the best of a bad situation. So anyway, Samson at this point realizes he's married and takes a young goat. The whole idea there is we're going to go have supper and cohabit. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. So, shades of Rachel and Leah. But the point is, dad has made arrangements for the older daughter. And he's got this thug. I don't think it was unknown to the people who he paid the bet off to where he got the stuff. So dad really doesn't want to have him ticked off, so he offers his younger daughter. Verse 3, And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Dad is a Philistine, remember? 
Timnah's a Philistine city. He went down to the Philistines. So Samson at this point is saying, you guys have done me dirty. I didn't kill 30 of your guys to pay my bet off. In fact, I didn't kill the 30 guys I made the bet with. I mean, how lucky are you? So I am now really ticked off at the Philistines. And since you guys have done me dirty with respect to my wife, I will be innocent of whatever I decide to do to you. Verse 4. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. He turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails and sent these flaming foxes into the grain fields. Interestingly, the Romans used to do something similar in a war. And what they would do is they would take pigs and smear them with tar and then light the pigs on fire and send these flaming pigs into the enemy formation and create all sorts of confusion and chaos. Somebody else did this. Somebody wanted to talk to Joab, and Joab was not answering his phone calls. So somebody did basically the same thing and burned one of Joab's field. Probably learned it from Samson. So this, this happens other times. But, of course, the deal is Samson is, as I say, more than a little ticked. So he takes these 300 foxes and ties them together at the tail, puts torches in their tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Obviously, you have got a pair of foxes who can't get away from each other and who are panicked, and they just run every which way, spreading fire. Verse 6. Then the Philistine says, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rocks at Etom. So they come and burn out Samson's father-in-law and I'm assuming Samson's erstwhile bride. Samson then says, you can't do that to my wife and lays into them and then went back and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etom. So verse 9. So then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why did he come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. He's a wanted man now. They finally get around to deciding we better do something about this guy. 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he took a fresh jawbone of a donkey, put out his hand and took it, and with it struck down a thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. One sort of wonders how that thing hanged together for a thousand guys, but it did, apparently. I've also heard that this is not the jawbone of a donkey, but an ox goad. In other words, a goad that you would guide an animal with. The idea of the jawbone of a donkey being an effective weapon as opposed to a staff that you would guide a donkey with might be more effective as a weapon. I don't know that. Verse 16. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out of it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of that was called in Hachore. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So I am going to stop there for the evening. The next one is the infamous story of Samson and Delilah, as they try and figure out how to bind him. But as I say, I see lots of parallels with our current president in this story. Got a temper, big guy, kind of a thug, long hair, doesn't drink, got an eye for the ladies. Also, if you go for him, he comes right back at you. In other words, you attack him and does not turn the other cheek. He comes right back at you. So as I think of our current dear president and read this story, I see him all over it. Mm-hmm.